Duke fans, hello and welcome to episode 177 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We had a nice week off, but now we have some basketball to preview this week as well as a special interview that we teased last week. First, a wonderful thank you to our sponsors, Bird Campbell, for their constant support of the podcast. If you or someone you know are in need of legal advice or representation and you live in Florida or Texas, you already know who to trust, Bird Campbell. That's who Bird Campbell means business. Uh, it's down the line here coming to you this week from my home in our nation's capital of Washington, D.C. I am out of the cold and I got the rest of the crew with me. Uh, Sam Klein and the Gothic Wonderland. Or are you in the Gothic Wonderland this week? I am not. And I need to apologize for my, I expect, lower audio quality this week. I am calling in from a cell phone. I am in Park City, Utah. I believe that this is the second time that I have done the podcast from Park City. I believe the first time was during during our inaugural season. I was out here skiing, and I am doing that again. But this time, I am with about sixty of my classmates. So it is a uh, it is a raucous time. We have to we have to hurry up to the show so that I can go out to our bar crawl, which is going to be. Dude, really I am important. so jealous. Hey, yeah, are you going to high Are you going to High West? Because if you are, I might have I, a list. So I was at I was at High West last night. For those who don't know, High West is this very cool traditional distillery in in Park City, and it is very close to where we're staying. So I was there last night for a cocktail, and that was awesome. And maybe we'll go they have back. Great whiskey. They have, absolutely they have great whiskey. whiskey. Yeah. I had this um, I had this like blended cocktail whiskey. That it was like a it's a whiskey that was like made with. It was blended with extra ingredients, like during the barreling process, so that it mm-hmm. mimics a cocktail. It was I know like exactly a, what you're like talking about. Manhattan in a barrel or something. Yeah, it's really, yeah. it's really good. I, yeah, I that thing is fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that thing was awesome. In, welcome to the Duke Alcohol Report. Yeah. The skiing, the skiing was great today too. Just in case you were wondering, I, I believe that too. I believe that too. I um, hate you. I, I hate you I, right now. The I'm the guy. If you ever, if you're ever out skiing, if you're ever out skiing and you see a guy with a, with a white helmet with a bunch of duke decals on it that's me just say hi well say hi when you're at the bottom of the hill and not while you're still on it so well, yeah, um, exactly i will bring in the resident at alien jason evans jason hello i'm not skiing right now and i hate Sam I. skiing <laughs> i'm not i'm not making a salary right now so you know that, that's yeah, you're right yeah. I, I have that working for me yeah Okay, well, guys, let's get into it. Uh, we're going to start with this. We teased it last week. We have a special interview, and Jason was the one that was there to make it happen. So I'm going to give him the introduction honors. Jason, who do we have this week on the podcast? So we've got one of the really unique characters in Duke Blue Devil history. Uh, Greg Paulus is the guy that we're going to be interviewing. If you if you don't recall, I think we mentioned this earlier on the podcast. Greg recently became the head coach at Niagara. Um, he is, uh, he's been an assistant coach a lot of different places, mostly at Ohio State. Um, uh, but one of the amazing things about Greg's career, of course, he was the starting point guard for Duke for three years as a freshman, sophomore, and junior. And then as a senior, uh, he wasn't so much the starter anymore. Um, and, and then after he was done at Duke, of course, he became the starting quarterback for Syracuse. He is probably unique among all athletes out there that – point guard for Duke and a starting quarterback for Syracuse the next year. Truly remarkable and a great guy. I had a great time talking to him. Have a listen. Here's our interview with former Dukey Greg Paulus. 
So, Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me. Uh, I know that you've been on the road recruiting a lot. I know that there's been a lot of changes in your life. Uh, in addition to getting the the fabulous head coaching job at Niagara, you, you've got you got a little tyke, you got a little kid around you, don't you? I do. I have a uh, 15 month year old uh, son uh, named Preston, and uh, it's been uh, just awesome to be to be a dad and watch him. Uh, continue to grow. He started to take his first steps a couple weeks ago. And so um, just trying to enjoy as many moments as I can with him. And um, I just, I, I, we're trying to slow down time and, and enjoy all the time with him. All right. So is he going to become a quarterback or a point guard? Because being <laughs> your son, <laughs> he can take either path, right? <laughs> I, I want him to do whatever he is, uh, whatever he's passionate about. And uh, whether that's sports related or not, um, but uh, certainly just neat having him around. And, um, you know, over the last couple of weeks, it's been fun having uh, him just come to the office and hanging out and, and um, uh, any ch- as, many, as much time as I can get with him, uh, I- I'm certainly going to do that and enjoy it. I love it. I love it. All right, let's get to the coaching career. And, and the way I'm going to divide this up is we're going to talk about Greg Paulus, the coach, a little bit, and we're going to talk about Greg Paulus, the Duke basketball player, a little bit. But uh, starting with the coaching career, talk to me a little bit about your coaching influences because you spent a lot of time at Ohio State um, with Thad Mata. Um, obviously, you had four years in college with Coach K. Talk about what you got from both those guys, two of the, two of the greats, two of the legends in the game. Um, how did they influence you? Yeah, I, I think that um... – I've learned so much, and, and I've been fortunate to have so many great experiences. Uh, when I started coaching uh, at the Naval Academy as an assistant, I was with Billy Lang, who's now at, at uh, St. Joe's. Uh, you know, I, I was with Coach Mata for six years, and um, obviously, you know, his track record speaks for himself. And then I've, I've been able to uh, have experiences at Louisville and George Washington before coming here. And um, I, I think one of, the, one of the biggest things is trying to take a little bit from everybody. And, uh, you know, every, every time I get asked this question about Coach K, um, it's it's uh, really hard to answer because he's been so influential on who I am as a person. Um, you know, obviously professionally being a coach, and it's it's one of the reasons. Uh, you know, I went to Duke was my relationship with coach, and um, you know, the, he, there's no one better to learn from than him. And uh, you know, the foundation for my coaching uh, career professionally is is from Duke, and and the values and um, that he's taught me that I've learned from him, not just the game, but his leadership, his communication, uh, just, just him, him being him. Uh, I've, I've been able to just be blessed to have that opportunity to learn from him. So uh, you've been a part of big programs, Ohio State and Duke, you know, two of the biggest out there. But now you find yourself um, at, at a smaller program. I mean, let's not mince words. Uh, what are the challenges that you're facing at Niagara that, um, uh, you know, that obviously don't exist in a bigger program? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, I've had, I've had experiences at, at both places. Um, you know, when you, when you look at the Naval Academy and, and now here at Niagara, um, you know, I, there, there's, I, I don't look at it like um, the, the negatives of it. I look at it from a positive standpoint. And, and I believe in, in Niagara University. I believe in uh, the academics. I believe in uh, the tradition in the basketball program, uh, the people. Um, you know, the way that I look at it is that it's an amazing opportunity and I'm, and I'm so grateful to be a part of this university. And, um, for me, I, I, that's, that's just the way that I've, I've, I look at things. I've always looked at it that way. And, um, I, I, I'm just very proud to represent Niagara basketball and, and be their head coach. 
Now you got the job at Niagara in in kind of a surprising way. You were Patrick Beeline's top assistant, and he he had to resign for personal reasons. You made the transition to being a head coach so quickly. Um, did that was it more of a challenge because you, you didn't necessarily know it was coming? It was like you know, literally one day you're a, a top assistant, and the next day, without a lot of preparation, you're the interim head coach, and a few weeks later, you're the full time head coach. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, I think the um, you know the the uh, the timing of it is probably um, just because you're 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 getting ready and you're preparing for games, um, and you know we played shortly after uh, it, it was announced, and so um, you know it, when the timing of it typically is is after the season, and you're able to have uh, you know off season where you can uh, implement uh, you know your leadership and and uh, the way that you would like your program run, and uh, you know right now being with a few days away from the first. You know, first game and and the short time, it's it's uh, it's something that's very exciting to me. Um, I've been able to uh, see the progression and and see uh, the infant stages of of where we are in terms of implementing the foundation and and creating an identity within our culture. And uh, so for me, it's it's exciting. And um, uh, the, the just I guess the timing of it would be uh, just a little bit unique. Uh, yeah, for sure. Hey, I saw the video the other day. Um, I, I I think. Niagara tweeted it out um, of you coming in the locker room after your first win. The team just goes crazy as they celebrated with you. It really shows how close you are with these players, how much it meant to them, how much it meant to you to get that victory. But it also made me wonder something. You're you're only 33. And I mean, congrats for being a, a, a head coach at the age of 33. <laughs> Not easy to accomplish. Um, is there a challenge being an authority figure for guys that, you know, you're not that much older than them. Um, you know, you want to be friendly. I mean, you want to be friends with your players, but, but you're also kind of the boss, right? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, in terms of preparation and, and the experiences that I've talked about in the past and, and learning from coach K and learning from all the other different coaches I've had the chance to work under work with and, and learn under, um, you know, it's, it's, it's moments like that, that you are preparing for, uh, opportunities like these and and sometimes you don't know when they're going to come up but um in terms of being 33 you know i I don't look at it in terms of it i think leadership is leadership and um you know whether you're 53 or 33 whatever it may be um you know i I think that uh the foundation of what we're trying to do is uh to have relationships with them and i think you know with uh maybe age you know you you can look at that like hey you can relate more and, and the, the energy and the enthusiasm that we have within our program and the direction we're going. Um, that's something to me that, that, that that's why it's really exciting. Um, but, um, you know, I, I don't look at age being uh, one of those things. I just look at it in terms of, Hey, we've been preparing for this and working towards this. And, and uh, we have an opportunity that we would love to take advantage of and, and um, you know, make it a great experience. It, talking about relationships, I can tell you are truly a Coach K disciple. Um, he he's all about that, uh, you know. And that and that sort of brings me to I'm going to transition a bit to Duke now. But I want to talk about the Duke coaching community. It's getting to be huge. <laughs> there are a lot of you guys. <laughs> There's so many former Coach K players who are now coaching all over the all over the country, all over the place. Um, you know, in college and the NBA. I got to know, is there like a, is there like a special email group or a text chain or something (laughs) that you guys have (laughs) for giving advice to each other or bouncing questions off each other? 
It, it, it's amazing. I saw a graphic uh, a few days ago, I think it was, that uh, Duke tweeted out there in terms of uh, just the coaches that are, are currently head coaches of college and NBA. And um, it, it's truly an honor. And, and um, to, to be able to go to Duke and play for Coach K and um, have those experiences and, uh, you know, the, the brotherhood and the family, um, you know, that's one of the reasons you go there. And um, it, it felt right it was home for me um you know coach coach uh is such a bit he was such a big reason why i went there um and he, and he still is and he's, he's with me every single day and um you know i've had a chance to meet a lot of the coaches that are currently head coaches i played for i mean my my assistant coaches for three and four years were uh coach dawkins coach collins and coach wojo um, you know, so I, I was fortunate to group. learn. <laughs> that's that's you know, and, and that's just how how um, amazing of an experience it was, and how grateful I am to not you know learn from Coach K, but also learn from uh, head coaches that were assistant coaches. And um, you know, it's 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 amazing the relationships you get uh, to have, and and uh, people you get to meet and learn from, and um, you know. You, they're mentors of mine. They're, they they've become friends, obviously, and and uh, I've talked to a number of those uh, coaches over the last couple of weeks and months um, as these transitions have happened. But also when I was uh, an assistant coach at other places, and also as a player, uh, I've leaned on them for advice um, as time has gone on, depending on the situation. All right, I want to talk a little bit about your your time at Duke. Um, what is the thing that you remember the most uh, about those years, the, the, the mid 2000s when, I mean, look, the ball was in your hand more than anybody else uh, for, for much of the time. Uh, you know, just reflect with me for a moment. What was it like being a player um, out there on the floor? There, there's nothing like putting on the Duke jersey and uh, having the opportunity to represent Duke University and uh, play for Coach K. And um, you, you think of the, the, the coaches. Uh, the former players, the the history and tradition, and and the and 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 how Duke and why Duke is the way Duke is, and uh, just the opportunity to represent and be a part of, um, to me, the best program in college basketball, and um, I, I just have uh, I, I'm very honored, and and uh, it's it's it just so much pride to um, ha- have the opportunity to represent Duke in that way, and and uh, obviously play for Coach K. All right, come on. Let's get specific, though. I want, like, your favorite moment or your favorite game. Um, when you look back on it, what's the one where you're like, that, this is the one that sticks out the most to me? I, I don't know if there's a, um, a favorite game. Um, you certainly remember moments, and, and even now as I'm coaching, um, and I see a player uh, play really well or maybe not play so well, or as, as right now I'm coaching and, and I'm sitting in my office and I'm, and I'm reflecting back on an experience that, Hey, coach did in a film room or uh, something that the team did to take a step forward. And how can I create ownership within our, our players in order to take that step forward? And uh, we're, we're in the early stages of, of creating that culture and identity. And um, I think when, when I'm able to sit back and reflect at different points, depending on the situation, um, the Duke experiences, you know, there's, there's always one, two or three of those times where I can, Say, hey, I remember when coach met with me when I lost confidence, or I remember when coach uh, we played really well and we I was able to take one step to the next step, and this is how he did that. Um, you know, whether that's individual meetings, group meetings, film sessions, uh, inspiration and motivation to the team, uh, just the way he 
you know, led by example with how passionate he was and um, the ability to, you know, the standard of Duke basketball. Um, and, and that is one thing that, that we're trying to create here at Niagara is, is the standard for Niagara basketball, how we're going to conduct ourselves off the court, how we're going to do things on the court. And, um, you know, that's, it, it's hard to pinpoint one specific example of that because there are so many and because um, what we're trying to do in the early stages of, of creating that culture. Um, you talked a little bit about, uh, you know, various moments in your career um, when you were either down or up or whatever. And, and if I can, just for a moment, I mean, your, your career, your senior season didn't, I, I'm sure it didn't go the way you expected. You'd been a, you'd been the starting point guard as a freshman, sophomore, and junior. And then as a senior, you took more of a reserve role um, and your minutes were reduced and the such. How difficult was that? Um, did Coach K come and talk to you about it? Um, you know, just, uh, you know, go back with me a little bit. To, I believe that was 2008, 2009, right? 2009. 2009 was my senior year, and, and uh, I, was, I, I was proud to be a part of the ACC championship team uh, that we won the ACC tournament that year and uh, won 30 games. And, and um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, when you're, when you're a part of something bigger than yourself, um, which, is, which is such, you know, that's, that's what Duke is. Everybody's a part of it, and you create ownership uh, moving forward uh, as a team. And, um, you know, that, that to me is to, to be a part of it and uh, to, to have a role um, that helps win a championship and, and hang a banner in Cameron Indoor Stadium, um, that's something that uh, as, as I bring my son back to Duke and, and as, I, as I reflect back on multiple ACC championships and um, different experiences, that's, that's something that uh, my teammates and I, we talk about, and, and um, that, that's part of the lifelong relationships that, uh, that you build when you play at Duke. Spoken like a true coach. I, I like that answer. Um, you know, you, you to some extent had one of the most remarkable immediate post-basketball careers that anyone could imagine. Um, you graduate from Duke. Your four years of eligibility as a basketball player are done, but the NCAA rules say you could play a different sport for a fifth year, especially someplace else. So you go to Syracuse and you become the starting football quarterback for the Orange. <laughs> Talk to me about what that was like. It's it's almost unbelievable that anyone could play college basketball for four years, not presumably not really touch a football, and then go be the starting quarterback and a very successful one for a, a Power Five team like Syracuse. Yeah, that that was um, you know one of those a, a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, it, with the way that the NCAA rule is, is you have if you do change sports um, without redshirting, you're able to play. You know, change sports and. Um, I was fortunate enough that uh, Coach Marone gave me an opportunity, um, and, and he's, he's um, obviously the head coach of the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars right now, and it was his first year and, and uh, w was able to get an opportunity and, and uh, was able to earn my master's there at the Newhouse School of Communications and, and have a chance to compete for a job. And, um, you know, that, that's something that uh, when, when he took over, um, he, was, he was recreating – he was creating his culture, his identity – um, and, and really laying the foundation for Syracuse football and uh, being able to win um, as, as many games as they had in the last five years, um, you know, or the most wins in the last five years, and uh, being able to uh, just have that opportunity. It, it's, um, it, it was really, really neat, a lot of fun, and uh, just it, it, was, it was a very short window. I think I made that decision sometime in May, 
and then the football season was in August. So there was really only June, July, August, um, really to learn a playbook and try to get um, acclimated to football and and um, get acclimated with teammates and and uh, trying to turn down a, turn turn around the Syracuse program. Um, you know, and, and I hadn't touched a football I think in you know four or five years there. So yeah, yeah, wait, um, I, I had a blast. I was going to ask. I, I loved. I loved it. I I, I loved the experience, and and uh, just just grateful that Coach Marone gave me that opportunity. Wait, I want to be clear about something. Had you really not touched a football in four years? Uh, no, no. I mean, you you throw it around every once in a while on campus, but in terms of, uh, you know, from from the day that we were in summer, you know, the day that we made the decision and football season was over. Um, I think I played in the high school All-American game during basketball season. I think that, that the U.S. Army All-American game, that was in January. And um, I, I hadn't touched one from January. That might have been 05 until whenever the date was, May 2009. Okay, so Duke fans do wonder because our football team, the Duke football team was struggling a, a good bit during the years that you were, uh, that you were point guard for the basketball team. Did you ever consider, did you ever talk about, or was it like not even a remote possibility that you would try and play two sports at Duke? At, at that time, they had a uh, multi-year starter, uh, Thad Lewis, and uh, he had a great career there at Duke and, and uh, um, ended up making, you know, uh, having, having an NFL career there. And, and uh, he, he was the guy. And, and, uh, I, and, and uh, you know, when you only have, um, you know, one, one year to – compete for a job you want to make sure that there's an opportunity to do that and and uh, with with Thad being such a great quarterback and uh, it was his program and coach uh coach Cutcliffe and what what an amazing job he's done at Duke um you know I wanted to go somewhere where I could um have an opportunity to to compete for a starting job that makes sense I I I get it all right one last question um before I hit you by the way I, I just want to warn you in advance Every player I have on, I ask him for a good Coach K story. So be ready with a good Coach K story. But before we get for your best Coach I, K story. I, I, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to ask it anyway. So you're going to have to, uh, you'll have to come up with some kind of answer. But before I get to that, one more thing about your teammates. You, you spanned two different eras. Because as a freshman, you played with J.J. Redick and Sheldon Williams. I mean, two of, two numbers in the rafters. And then uh, by the time you were a senior, you were playing with Kyle Singler and John Shire and Gerald Henderson, Nolan Smith, guys who went on the very next year to, to win a ring, guys you know, who, were, who were also legends. Who was the player who like made your jaw drop that you were just like, oh my gosh, that guy, I can't believe that he can do that. Who was the one player you played with that you're just like, that's the one I'm in awe of? Well, those, those are some, some pretty good players right there. <laughs> um, how, how great think about that how great is it as a point guard that uh those are the guys that surround you and uh oh yeah <laughs> they, they, i mean like you 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 look at you know the, the wings and the bigs and and uh i mean you talked about you know guys that whose jerseys are hanging in the rafters and and as, as a freshman i think you know when you're able to uh be able to throw the ball inside and, and we won the acc regular season and the acc conference championship that year um, with JJ and Sheldon uh, leading the way there, and um, I, I think when when you think about those two, and then when you uh, see what they did, you know, obviously, uh, you know, lottery picks, both of them, and then JJ is still uh, having what what an what an NBA career he's having. Um, you know, it's it's uh, you just think about 
how, how, how neat it is that, that those are the guys you get a chance to pass to. And, um, you know, I think that those guys really um, helped make my learning and, and, and really taught me what it was like as a, as a freshman. Um, I mean, I saw J.J. Redick, and, I mean, he scored 40-plus points in the Meadowlands, uh, you know, against Texas. I saw him score 40 multiple times, and he's the all-time ACC leading scorer at that point. And you see him score – high 30s, 40, he's averaging 27, 28 points per game, right, that year? Yeah, 26.8, uh, yeah. <laughs> 26, 20, so, so, so he, he's Crazy. averaging that. And then you, you see those two guys the very next morning um, in the gym working. And I think that those guys were able to teach that this is what it takes to, to have that type of success. Um, and there's, there's certainly no doubt on, on why they were so successful with the way that they prepared, the way that they practiced um, and, and competed, and, and, and being able to learn that as a freshman was um, as, as good of a learning uh, situation as I could have. They, 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 they made the on-the-court and off-the-court, um, you know, just, just you, you had great examples in front of you. Okay, so we're going to wrap things up now. Greg, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Before we go, I'm going to ask the question, I need a Coach K story. We've gotten some great ones. <laughs> I've gotten. What, I mean, what, what, what ones have you gotten? <laughs> uh, so uh, I think it was Shane Battier told us a story about Coach K coming in the locker room with a samurai sword, um, or maybe I forget who it was who told that story. There was someone else who told a, a story about Coach K talking about how he they, he just wanted them to win one game for a little old Polish man. We've had some really good ones. We've had some we've had some other folks who say they just couldn't, you know, they couldn't think of of the perfect Coach K story. But you know, like. Uh, you're a coach now. I mean, there must be some way <laughs> there must be some way he inspired you guys at one moment, or something he said in a in a huddle, you know, at a tense moment in a game that you still take with you. Come on, give me, give me, give me a little nugget, just a little piece of what it's like to be around Coach K. Jason, I may, I may have to call you back on that one. I got, I got to find. I may have to find the right one. I may, I may have to find the right one. I don't know if I have the right one at this at this current point right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I will hold you to that. Here's what I want you okay. to do. You, you've got my That's... cell phone number. Uh, yeah. you, you, I need you to text me when you think of the right Coach K story, and we will get ba- get you back on the line, and we will do it on a future podcast. The The Greg Paulus Coach K story is coming up. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Well, J- well Jason, I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, it's you know, I, I think the biggest thing for me is, is just, you know, how, how much I love Duke and, and how much I love the experience and um, the, the, the opportunity to be a part of that program and, um, you know, the people you get a chance to be around and the, uh, the, the, the to be around Coach K, it's, 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 um, it, it's, it's just something that is, it's, it's I, I'm so grateful that I made that decision. Uh, to go there and, and that coach believed in me enough and, and I can't thank him enough for um, who he is and, and uh, what he has taught me and what he has meant to my life. Well, Greg, we appreciate you coming on the podcast. We appreciate all you did for Duke University and still being a great representative of us. And congrats again on being the head coach at Niagara. We are watching. We are wishing you guys so much luck. And uh, I look forward to talking to you sometime in the future when you've, when you've got the right Coach K story for me. <laughs> Jason, I, I appreciate it and uh, looking forward to connecting with you down the road. Great. Talk to you soon. And, and again, uh, good luck at Niagara. Thank you.
First of all, thank you, Greg Paulus, for joining Jason and joining us on the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We're looking forward to him coming back at a later date when we will have his Coach K story ready. I know it's going to be a good one because we're going to give him some extra time to think about it. But uh, very cool stuff, Jason. Uh, I'm going to toss it to Sam. Sam, what were your takeaways from this interview? I think that Paulus is one of these. Jason said this at the top, that he's a unique sort of figure in Duke basketball history. I think that Duke fans remember him perhaps worse than they should, given that, as as he mentioned in the interview, at the end of his career, he was sort of demoted. He was sent to the bench. Nolan Smith was starting in his place, and it was really for the good of the team. And, and he, for better or worse, just accepted it, it sounds like. He didn't really want to talk about the conversations he had with Coach K. You know, you've heard stories like from J.J. Redick about the the very serious talks he's had with Coach K like after his sophomore year when he was overweight and not really committed and all that kind of stuff. Paulus, it sounds like, really just is is the ultimate team player and was able to just accept the role and look back and say, you know what? Best thing about it is that we won an ACC championship and I was a part of that. And for all the success that he had early in his career being JJ Reddick's point guard, he didn't let that sort of ruin him mentally. And, and he was always, he was always with it even into his sophomore year, which was such a mess as you guys remember with, with him and Josh McRoberts as the two captains along with DeMarcus Nelson, where they lost in the first round to VCU a year that I think Duke fans don't really like to talk about. He, he, again, he, he just kept his head up and kept playing and, and was still the around way, the next year. By the way, little and, known fact, uh, people don't remember this. He had a career high 25 points against Virginia Commonwealth in, in that game that they lost. He was like, no one played well in that game except Greg Paulus. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just shouldered on through it. So I, I think we, we don't admire his toughness and his teamwork the way that we probably should. And I think it shows now the, what, what he was talking about and especially how Jason brought up the, the video of him in the locker room with the players and, and what he was saying in the interview about leadership, that it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how old you are relative to your, to your team, your players. He's a, he's a real leader and he creates great teams around him. Other players liked playing with him. And it's clear that his Niagara players are excited to play for him, even though he's, he's a new head coach. And even though, you know, his, his coaching resume isn't that of some other guys, he obviously got to work with Thad Mata, but otherwise he's bounced around a lot. And, and I think this is, this is a much more normal start to a coaching career than perhaps we see from a lot of other Duke guys, guys like John Shire, who come back to college basketball to work directly at Duke to work for arguably the best program immediately right off the bat. Paulus isn't doing that. He's, he's sort of paying his dues as it were. And something tells me that he is going to be a head coach for a long time because he has that ability. You could hear it throughout the interview, that ability to, sort of understand the situation and be honest about it and also to connect with a lot of other people. And it sounds like he still has good relationships with members of the Duke coaching staff with, with some of the guys that he played with and doesn't, doesn't harbor any sort of ill will towards perhaps guys like Nolan Smith who, who supplanted him in the lineup. That doesn't seem to bother him and that he still comes back for stuff. And he said he brings his kid to Cameron to, to watch Duke games. So all of that is pretty cool, and, and it was neat that we got to catch up with him. And I hope we get to again to finally get a funny Coach K story out of him. The one thing that I, I wish I had been on the call for, and I, I mentioned this to you guys before we had the interview, and then I never. Oh, got it's to a great story. Sort of, yeah. Story. So, so when I was a when I was a sophomore, I was in the walk up line for the Carolina game. I hadn't tented that year. I was in the walk up line, and 
Greg Paul, we were, we were the first ones in the walk-up line, me and a handful of buddies and Greg Paulus would, you know, all the players would come by for practice every day. We were there out there for, for three days and the players would all walk by for practice and Paulus would always talk to us. He always say, hi, how you guys doing? Whatever. And one time he brought us a fresh baked loaf of banana bread that his mom had made. He was like, this is for you guys. You know, you've just been sitting out here on the sidewalk and that kind of stinks. <laughs> so like, here's some banana bread. And we were like, okay, man, that's, that's fantastic. So I wish I had, next time we have him on, I'll have to be on the call so that I can say, Greg, do you remember giving a bunch of idiots a loaf of banana bread? And he'll say, no, but that does sound like something my mom would have done. And we'll laugh about it and we'll move on. So all that to say, I enjoyed the interview and, and I hope we get to have him on again because his is a career I think we are going to want to pay attention to going forward. Yeah, I think you took a lot of what I was going to say, Sam, because I think, you know, well, that's what I tend would- to do. Yeah, but I, I think that's a good thing because when you listen to an interview like this, you I think the fact that that energy kind of exudes itself in him, like just him talking about how he's gotten to this point, what he's learned from uh, not just Coach K, but Thad Mata, and, and really, I mean, recognize that he's been placed in a situation that's kind of extreme. You don't necessarily just, I mean, it's not like he got his you know first coaching job, he applied and did this, he was thrusted into this position. He performed well, and then they gave it to him uh, and, and he earned it. So I think that sort of thing, being able to coach under pressure, under, you know, not the best of circumstances when it comes to a transition like this, you don't have your guys, quote unquote, you don't have an, an opportunity to kind of lay claim to your program. You have to do it on the fly. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how he develops as a coach over the next few years when he gets a chance to recruit when he gets a chance to you know bring in the guys that he wants and 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 make his own mark on uh, a mid-major program like Niagara Um, and and one that people have heard about because they've been in the tournament you know quite a bit over the last like 15-20 years when it comes to you know these lower to lesser mid-majors they've been right at at the forefront of, of one of those so uh, it'll be interesting to see how he does that, and I'm really glad that we got to hear that part from him because that's not something, like you said, Sam, that's not something we hear a lot from the Coach K coaching tree because they're getting themselves into bigger and better positions off the bat. You know, the only thing that I would add uh, other than, you know, once again to say thanks to Greg. Uh, by the way, he was so great. Um, uh, he and I were originally supposed to talk at one point, and um, and there was sort of a mix up and, and they got the wrong time. And I thought that like the the AD was going to call me and, and tell me when we were going to do it. Um, and my phone rings and it's Greg Paulus. And he's just like, hey, Jason, hey, sorry, we got the time. Something mixed up. You know, can we do it now? And I was like, oh, actually, I'm in my car. I can't do it right now. And so we arranged it for the next night. But he was just he was so genuine um, and, and excited and, and eager to do this and, um, you know, wanting to, to reconnect a little bit um off the uh you know with the with the duke fans um and then the other thing that stuck out to me i just thought he sounded like a coach the whole time even keeled um the right attitude sounds like a leader of men everything that he said and look i know these guys are they know they're being interviewed and they know they have to you know be somewhat circumspect about some of the things but i just thought he came off like someone who's thinking about the right kinds of things that a coach should be thinking about. I was very impressed with him and I agree with you guys. I think that, I think that he has the potential to have a very, very big coaching career ahead of him at Niagara or wherever else it may end up being. Yeah. He could be one of those coaches where 15, 20 years from now, he's at a power five school coaching 
And you're like, wow, I still remember when he was, you know, cutting his teeth at Ohio State as a video guy and has moved himself all the way up to becoming a head coach at a power five school. I, I really see that in him. And I think just just by his his personality, his energy, uh, that's something that rubs off on players. And you can tell already with his guys, um, they're playing for him. So I think that's uh, going to be something that we're going to look forward to watching over the uh, coming months and, and years, uh, however long he's at Niagara. But best of luck to him and thank him. Thank you, Greg, for being a part of the DBR podcast. Okay, guys, we have a basketball game this week after what was about a two-week break for finals. Duke basketball will finally get back into it this Thursday against Wofford. Now, Wofford had themselves a pretty wonderful weekend. Ooh, boy, did they ever. (laughs) They beat UNC 68-64 at Carmichael Auditorium. Yes, I I did not go back to 1976. I did say Carmichael Auditorium. Um, But now they come back to the triangle to face the Blue, Blue Devils in Cameron. Jason, I'm going to start with you. What should Blue Devil fans expect Thursday night when we lace them up against the Terriers? Uh, So I would say we should expect something somewhat similar to what we saw against Virginia Tech. This is going to be a team that takes a lot of three-point shots. They they shoot, get this, 51% of their shots, more than half of the shots they take, come from outside the three-point line, and they hit them at a pretty good rate, 30, uh, 35 and a half, 30, almost 36% of their three-pointers that they hit. They are led by Storm Murphy. Storm Murphy, one of the, that's one of the great names, I think, in college basketball. Storm Murphy, he will, the storm will rain threes down upon you if, you don't, if you're not very careful about uh, watching what he's doing. He hits better than 50% of his three pointers. That's just scary to think about. This is a, you know, there are guys out there that can shoot you out of the gym. This is one of them. And he takes step back. I mean, Carolina fans saw this. He takes step back threes. He has an incredibly quick release. Um, uh, Trey Jones and our other perimeter defenders, Jordan Goldwire and the such cannot lose track of storm Murphy. Now Wofford is, you know, sort of the sacrifice for being this team that shoots a ton of three pointers is that they don't have many bigs. They only have one player over 6'7". They're not a good rebounding team in the bottom 100 rebounding teams in the country. Um, and, and I suspect we're going to see Vernon Carey having a pretty big day against him. Uh, 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 unlike Virginia Tech, they don't really have – their big man, their one big guy, doesn't go outside and shoot three-pointers. So I think, unlike Virginia Tech, Duke is going to be able to play their bigs. We'll be able to play Vernon Carey and not have to worry about um, – uh, you know, him guarding someone on the perimeter, perhaps. Uh, so, And if that's the case, I think Vernon will have a very, very big day in the paint. Um, the other thing, I, just really quick, I just wanted to note about their schedule. Despite beating Carolina, this is a team that got blown out by South Florida. This is a team that lost to William & Mary. They have won five games in a row, but but their their defense is is not good. They have one of the 100 worst defenses in all college basketball. They play at a very slow pace. Um, they are deep. So, you know, I don't think Duke's going to be able to necessarily use our depth against them quite too much. And then the last thing before I, I'll, let, I'll let Sam say some stuff, but if there is an all-name team, then Wofford has several guys on the all-name team. I said I love the name Storm Murphy. They've got another guy named Messiah Jones. You never want to be playing the Messiah around Christmas. And they have a, they have a guard who shoots a lot of threes whose name is Trey. Trey Hollowell, and most importantly – 
they have a player named Zion. He's not as good as our Zion, but I think any they got a Messiah. They've got a, a three-point shooting tray. They got a Storm, and they've got a Zion. I think that's a great name team. All right, that's kind of doesn't mean anything. So <laughs> Sam, give me something that means something. I mean, it sounds like they have a fairly biblical bent to to the names on their team. So Very you good. Be, the good. like you said, like you said, you got to be careful about about stuff like that. I was going to only note the schedule. So just to echo what Jason had mentioned, what's interesting about Wofford is that they started the year totally flat. They they lost to a, a few bad teams and and by a lot and have clearly improved from there. So I think especially if you think about Duke and, and what a sort of up and down experience it's been for the Blue Devils beating a Michigan State on the road a week after losing to a Stephen F. Austin and and playing at you know other tight games in Cameron against teams that they should not be playing tight games against. Wofford is a team that clearly is is riding high right now. Obviously the Carolina win just being just being, you know, right before this one will be big for them. And I think they won't come in feeling overwhelmed by by the atmosphere or the situation. Duke is going to be on winter break, so it won't be the sort of wild Cameron experience that that opposing teams usually get to see. And Wofford obviously just went into Carmichael Arena. Say what you will about playing in the Dean Dome, which people say is rather cavernous and not very loud. Carmichael's pretty small. And I would imagine that, that Carolina fans enjoy getting the chance to see their men's basketball team in Carmichael. So that's that should be a tough place to play. And Wofford has now won two consecutive games in Chapel Hill because they they beat Carolina at the Dean Smith Center a couple of years ago. And so they're all that to say that they're not afraid of the moment. And so don't expect them to perform that way. I, of course, think Duke is going to win. I always think Duke is going to win at home. Which didn't work out for us in one of our recent games, but but I, I I see this being an opportunity for Duke to maybe test out some other lineups. Uh, we mentioned that uh, size is not a great thing for Wofford, so perhaps we're going to see more of those of those rotations that involve guys like Joey Baker and Jack White playing as big men, and we'll get to kind of see how Coach K has retooled the lineup, especially since the end of the exam break. Yeah, you know what? I think the the best thing about Wofford being beating UNC is that it happened less than a week before they play us, so we're not going to overlook them. And and you know, there's obviously the rust that we will have to endure that comes with the long layoff uh, that we've always seen around this finals break. So I want to see our team come out with some energy to start the game, bring that intensity. But I also think that because UNC. Uh, suffer that L last weekend, that is not going to be one of those things where we're going to overlook them or say, oh, this team named Wofford's coming in and then we have another 10-day break. They're going to be ready for the Terriers to show up. And I don't anticipate we're going to shoot well initially. I think it's going to be something that we warm into the game and the second half is going to be hopefully the type of basketball we expect from the fourth-ranked team in the country. Uh, but leadership is going to be key to get this team ready to go. So I'm looking to these captains to lead by example and say, hey, here's how we come out of this break. And this team is not is is not going to run us out of our gym um, ever. So hopefully that is that is what they're saying to the guys and preparing them for the fact that the first half, they got to really be into it. And if there's not energy there, they got to make it uh, because that is uh, what's going to need to happen to beat the Terriers. Jason, why don't you bring it home for us? Yeah, so I wanted to, uh, even though we're ostensibly previewing Wofford, can can we take a moment and talk a little about Wofford beating UNC? Um, because even yes, though this let's is take 
Hey, Jason, let's take more than a moment for that. <laughs> uh, the the Tar Heels are in real, real trouble. Um, you know, good on Wofford. And and by the way, I think that the fact that they just beat Carolina will undoubtedly give Wofford more confidence against Duke than they might have otherwise had. Um, they're going to feel like they can play with anybody because they just played with a, one of the legendary teams in the country. I mean, certainly they would think, hey, uh, Carolina can play with Duke. So if Carolina can play with Duke and we beat Carolina, then we can play with Duke. So the the game gives Wofford confidence, which is an important factor for Duke to to sort of think about. Um, but on the other hand, I, I, we got to talk about Carolina for a moment. This is a team that is that they have fallen out of the top twenty five for God, a uh, hundred and it was 160 weeks, 100. I forget. It's It's been a long, long time. I should have the stat right in front of me. Since Carolina was last not in the top 25, they fell out of the AP top 25 today as a result of this loss. They've got two tough – they're playing Gonzaga and UCLA coming up in the next week or so. So we could be looking at a Carolina team that has two more losses in a row. Um, and and their problem – the problem is this is a dreadful offensive team other than Cole Anthony, and Cole Anthony has some mystery leg injury. Mystery leg injuries are really, really scary. Um, at, at, at the moment we're recording this podcast, Monday evening, they have not announced what's going on with Cole Anthony. There are some nasty rumors out there that Cole Anthony could be out for a long time or that Cole Anthony – people are even already talking about the fact that Cole Anthony may decide, look, I – you know, I played nine games. I, I averaged 19 points a game. You know, I showed that I could shoot and score at, at this level. And the NBA has seen enough to make me for sure a lottery pick. There's no reason for me to keep on playing and risk injury. There's talk about that. Look, we had this conversation about Zion Williamson last year. People have the conversation every year, you know, about guys who are for sure lottery picks. Why are they risking things? If this Carolina season starts to go south, you start to wonder why is Cole Anthony risking things on a team that it looks like they're really struggling. Um, and this Carolina club, you know, the thing that strikes me about them is even, even in some of the past years where we've sort of looked at their roster and wondered, hey, where are they? You know, uh, they, they look good, but not great, maybe, or whatever else is going on. You looked at their roster and you saw still multiple pros. I'm looking at their roster now. I mean, Cole, if Cole Anthony's not playing, I don't see anybody else in this roster that I'm like, that guy's a pro for sure. Armando Bacot, um, the, the the freshman forward they had, looks pretty good. Uh, you know, I think he's probably going to be in the NBA someday, but it's not a sure thing. He's not a surefire first-rounder. This is a Carolina team that looks like they are really devoid of the kind of talent you would have expected. They, they've got a couple, like, fifth-year seniors who transferred in that they tried, that they'd hoped would do a lot for them. Um, and those guys, it's just not working out yet. Uh, this, I, I don't want to... I don't want to jinx them too much, but if you tell me this Carolina team is the fifth or sixth best team in the ACC, I'm not arguing with you at this point. And can I, I'm talk, Jason? I'm Jason, can I can yeah, I throw go. some cold? Can I throw some cold water on this just to because I feel like you're, you're taking us down a dark path. Those Carolina teams that went to the Final Four in back-to-back years in very recent memory were not teams that that featured overwhelming NBA talent. And and Roy Williams, you know, as much as we as much as we like to give him grief about the way that he the way that he talks to the media and the way that he treated the whole academic scandal, Roy Williams knows how to to put a team together and and figure out how to get him to score. So I, I I agree with you that the roster isn't as 
loaded with talent as maybe we remember some some classic Carolina teams, even from pretty recent memory. But uh, they've got they've got a little bit of time to figure these things out. I think one of those uh, one of those UNC teams that featured Tyler Hansbrough started ACC play zero and two and still made the Final Four. So rest on you know uh, dismiss dismiss Carolina at your at your own peril because because Roy Williams does know what he's doing. Um, despite despite the the angry faces and the aw shucks uh, metaphors that he uses in press conferences, I'm going to sum up my thoughts on UNC currently with two words: womp, womp. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Okay, guys, enough of the basketball for this week. We're going to shift gears slightly. We're staying in the world of basketball, uh, but the new NET rankings are out. It's the first time we've seen these rankings this year, and it's the rankings that the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee will use to judge who's in and who's out come March. So I guess we should probably talk about them. Uh, Right now in the first poll, uh, Ohio State is the top-ranked team, followed by Kansas, San Diego State. San Diego State, yeah, I said that right. Butler, Baylor, Gonzaga, Auburn, Louisville, Stanford, and Dayton. Duke is actually 13th in this poll, and Duke and Louisville are the only two teams in the top 20. So, Sam, only two ACC I'm going to keep teams. Yeah. Only two ACC teams in the top 20, yes. Um, Sam, do you have any thoughts on this ranking? Are we where we expected, or is this something where we always look at this poll like we did last year? We go, what the hell is this? I think that. Duke is probably lower rated than they're going to end up at the end of the season. The Stephen F. Austin loss is just such a, it's such a dramatic outcome relative to the rest of their season. If you remove yo, that yo, game yo, wait, entirely. Wait, 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 Stephen F. Austin is number 74 in the net. They're actually a fairly decent team. Sure. But the, but, but a home loss to a non-conference opponent, regardless, yes, is, yes. is going to grade out pretty poorly. And I expect Duke to creep back up throughout conference play you know provided that the team keeps going sort of in the direction that we see them going I think at this point it's so early that some of these results are just going to be skewed in in the favor of 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 the San Diego States and the Butlers Ohio State I think is is pretty damn good at this point I think pundits have pretty much come around on that but otherwise I'm not really concerned with with like where Duke is the one thing that's tough and, and Donald you teed it up well, is that there are only two ACC teams in the top 20. And if this ranking is sort of dependent on you playing good teams, if going into conference play, and at this point, we're mostly through sort of the interesting part of non-conference play. Teams have, you know, a handful of teams still have those interesting rivalry games out of conference that, that they have to play, you know, before conference play starts. But for the most part, the, the sort of marquee non-conference games are over. If this is how the ACC looks going into that, then there aren't a lot of opportunities to to jump up higher for for mediocre teams or average or slightly above average teams to beat good teams if there aren't as many good teams in the conference. And if this is, I, I think we we may overrate how much the committee uses this ranking. I know that they they talk about it, but ultimately they're going to get in there and talk about the actual teams and who they want to see in certain places. And there's probably a lot more sort of discussion that happens that, that we're not all really privy to. If if they do use these rankings as much as they claim to, there aren't that many opportunities for Duke or for any other ACC program to get good wins. 
And if you want to motivate another ACC team, it's not just, hey, we're playing Duke this week. Isn't it great to beat Duke? It's, hey, we're playing Duke this week. This is one of the only shots you get at beating a top 10, a top 15 team the rest of the year, according to the rankings that matter. So you better go out and do it. That might make things harder for Duke. All right. So I got like four different things that I want to uh, say that relate to what Sam just pointed out. First of all, uh, as we've said, it is very early in the net. And last year we saw this happen where some of the early rankings seemed bizarre. It's worth noting that the NCAA does not say exactly how the net is put together. So there's still kind of a mystery as to how all these, how they, how they put these numbers in place. Um, but Last year, as the season would move on, the net would start to look more and more and more like the other major computer rankings, Pomeroy and Sagarin and T-Rank and BPI and all those other kind of folks. Um, and, uh, you know, that says to me that in the end of the day, the net rankings probably are going to end up being something that makes a lot more sense than this does. And it's worth noting, this is what I wanted to relate to that Sam brought up. Yes, the NCAA brings the net with them into the, the, the room, but they, they have said that they use four different computer models in their deliberations. They use the net, they use Ken Palm, they use ESPN's BPI, and they use Sagarin's ratings. Jeff Goodman, I think it was Jeff Goodman, someone I was reading on Twitter today said, if you look at those four different computer models right now, now that we have all four of them, now that we have the net we, and we have those other ones because they've been here all along and you average their rankings, suddenly some of the weird stuff in the net starts to go away. So San Diego State, hey, they're number three in the net. When you average the net, Ken Palm, BPI and Sagarin, San Diego State is suddenly number 14. Kentucky is 58 in the net. Uh, Memphis is 69 in the net. When you average them out, Kentucky and Memphis are both suddenly top 30 teams which is where where everyone thinks they are so i'm not you know i'm not going to get all up in arms and freak out about the net yet we know that it's early we know that it'll start it'll work itself out i i i don't really agree with the premise that because the acc teams are low and boy there are some acc teams that are really low virginia's 39 um carolina is 95 notre dame's 105 I mean, there are five ACC teams outside of the top 100. Um, if you look at the net right now, the ACC is sending four teams, basically only four teams to the tournament, Louisville, Duke, Florida State at number 27, Virginia is on the bubble at 39. No, no other ACC teams are getting in if you look at the net today. But I'm telling you again, as we saw this last year, as they start to play each other, their schedules are going to look more and more impressive. And and that's going to and and that's going to help their net rankings. And I guarantee you, by the end of the year, you're going to see five or six ACC teams in the top forty, not only three or four. You know, I, I think the one thing that I'll take from this ranking right now is when we look at March and we look at that selection show and we and we look at all the bracketology that leads up to it. There's one thing that is never by Duke's name, and that's their RPI number ever because they're never on the, they're very rarely on the bubble they're very rarely in, in that conversation where they're being considered not being in the tournament the last at least the last 30 years and i think when it comes to that that's what this net is about really i think at the end people don't won't care about it until they see it next to a team's name and they go oh this team is 
ranked 29th. Why aren't they in the dance? This team's ranked 67th. Why are they in the dance? I think that's really where we're looking at right now. And I think there's, you know, we're, we're, we're getting at, we're, I think we're getting something where we're, we're not too far. Uh, it's not something that we need to really worry about right now, but it's just kind of interesting to look at when you look at some of these teams, you go, what are they coming up with? And I think the one thing that Jason, you alluded to, what we don't know is how they set this up. And I think that would give more context to some of these numbers. Well, and, and also just the last thing I'll add is uh, people who study bracketology say that the top seeds, you know, if you're vying for one of the top two, three, maybe even four seeds, those tend to correspond to the polls and the the net ratings and, and these kind of other computer stuff. Those are the ways, like you said, Donald, that they find the bubble teams, that if you're at the very top of the polls, you're going to get a high seed. If you have a good computer kind of number, that's when you get in um, uh, off the bubble. Uh, so you're absolutely right, Donald. Um, Duke, most people see us, you know, number three, number four in the polls. That would align with us being a number one seed. And the fact that we're number 13 in the net isn't going to come into play. The Duke Basketball Report podcast is brought to you by the wonderful people at Bird Campbell, PA, a business law firm with offices in Florida and Texas who bleed Duke blue. Founded by two Duke class of 1978 graduates, Bird Campbell will handle all your business law needs and also join you in saying, go to hell, Carolina. For more information, please check out their website at birdcampbell.com. That's B-Y-R-D-C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L.com because you know Bird Campbell means business. Okay, it's time for parting shots. And Jason, I will begin with you. So uh, it's something that Duke fans don't really want to think about that much. But the reality is one of the major factors that drives our success from year to year is who turns pro and who doesn't. I mean, a year ago, if Trey Jones had decided to go to the NBA, this year's Duke team would be a very, very different team from what it is today. And uh, we're still several months off, obviously, from from knowing decisions and, and having all the data we need. But there's been a lot of talk about who from the current freshman class may be turning pro early and maybe thinking about it and all those other kind of decisions. And the reality is, other than Vernon Carey, who is playing lights out and looks like one of the best freshmen in the country and is clearly going to be going to the NBA, the other freshmen, it's, it's up in the air and no one can really tell. And a lot of folks are talking a lot about Cassius Stanley. And so I wanted to spend a moment cluing all of you in about something about Cassius Stanley that I think will be a really interesting aspect in whether he decides to turn pro or not. There's been a lot of talk about the fact that Cassius Stanley, even though he doesn't have like the ranking necessarily, um, you know, coming in that, that other one and done kind of players might have, that he could be somewhat more interested in turning pro because of his age. Cassius Stanley, as I've mentioned here on the podcast a couple of times, is basically the age of a junior. He's closer in age to Alex O'Connell than he is to Trey Jones, even though he's just a freshman. And that age will impact his draft stock. He doesn't get as much potential boost as other youngsters because he isn't that young. He's already 20. And it also impacts his draft decision because he may not want to wait around a long time. You know, even though his stock may not be that high, there are already a lot of players older than him already in the NBA. So he may be in a hurry to get there. Well, there's one other thing 
that I don't think a lot of Duke fans know about that could play a pretty big role in Cassius's decision. I want to ask how many of you know who Cassius Stanley's father is. W. Jerome Stanley, Cassius's father, is a graduate of USC and the USC Law School. He has been a major, significant sports agent for several decades now. He has represented NBA players like former L.A. Laker Brian Shaw, Baron Davis, but he's mostly been involved with the NFL. W. Jerome Stanley was the very first African-American agent to represent an African-American number one pick in the NFL draft when he represented Terrell Pryor. Terrell Pryor was the number one pick. Jerome Stanley was his agent. He also represented Keyshawn Johnson. Uh, Basically, every year, his company gets, you know, two or three or four guys who are being drafted, sometimes first-rounders, sometimes third- or fourth-rounders. But he's picking up NFL guys every single season. And I read online, the W. Jerome Stanley has negotiated over $250 million of pro contracts in his career. An agent typically gets about 10%. Bottom line, Cassius Stanley's family is pretty well off. And so that means that Cassius won't be making an NBA draft decision based on, oh my gosh, I need to take care of my family right away. His family's probably, I don't, obviously I don't know their full situation, but considering his dad is a pretty big time agent, his family's probably pretty darn well taken care of already. But the other thing it means is that Cassius is going to have a great sense of his draft stock, of what it means to be drafted, where he might be drafted. His dad is an agent. His dad has represented multiple NBA players. And I just think this is an interesting aspect of Cassius's draft decision. I know it's many months away. We got to see how he plays, see how he comes back from the injury and all those other kind of things. But I just thought it's an interesting thing. I wanted to tell all the listeners out there, as people wonder about this, it's yet another thing in the hopper as we try and figure out what Cassius Stanley might do regarding the NBA draft. Jason, I'm glad you uh, mentioned that because I think it's it's one of those things we talk every year about uh, towards the end of the season when we are talking about guys who are leaving for the draft early. And we talk about how they have the best draft process probably in college basketball because they have a guy by the name of Coach K who can you know tap into his network and and get the absolute most updated information about where they would land. And I think it's really critical to know that you know Cassius Stanley can do that twice over uh, and maybe several times over with just a network that between coach K and his dad, he's going to get the most, you know, accurate analysis of his game uh, that he could possibly get and make an informed decision. I think that speaks volumes for the kind of position that he's put himself in. That's really, really good. So that was a good, uh, a good pull. Uh, Sam, your parting shot. I did want to follow up on Jason's story and comment about Cassius Stanley to note that while I I think it makes sense that he might not go just based on he'll have the good data and and who knows exactly. He's probably a late first rounder at this point and and we're not sure what that means for your sort of long-term potential. I feel like the last few years when we've been talking about these early entry guys, we've speculated a lot about their different sort of situations, how how high they're going to go. Do they have a family reason why they want to be professionals already? All that kind of stuff. I feel like it usually comes down to, does the player want to do it? And regardless of the, of the draft stock consideration, it's if the player wants to go to the NBA, Coach K is going to say, okay, go for it. And everyone else is going to say, okay, go for it. it, it, it it's your life, and, and that's, that's sort of your decision. We've had, we've had guys leave who 
probably weren't ready to be in the NBA yet. Look at a guy like Trevon Duval. We've had guys stay like Trey Jones or, or Luke Kennard or Grayson Allen who were going to be first round picks and then decided, you know what? I'm going to come back because I just, I want to still be in college. I want more of that experience, whatever part of it that they're still looking for. So while, while Cassius Stanley may have access to better data than any of his predecessors at Duke, ultimately it's going to be, does he want to play in the NBA next year? And if he does, then, then he will all that. So all that aside, um, it, it'll be a, his will be a fun case study when we get to April. The parting shot that I wanted to share, Forbes came out this week with their annual list of the highest paid coaches uh, across all American sports. No surprise. Uh, our, our guy, Mike Krzyzewski, is the highest paid uh, men's college basketball coach. He is not the highest paid college coach that, that uh, he's beaten by both Dabo Swinney and Nick Saban. I feel like fans can probably understand that that, that is the case. I think the interesting thing is that those guys are the ones at the top along with John Calipari, there is a sort of rarefied air that you need to get to to be one of the top paid college coaches. If you look over at the at the professional side, obviously the guys at the top are names you've heard of, Bill Belichick, Greg Popovich, people like this. But there are other guys in the top 10 who aren't, you know, guys like Andy Reid, who has been successful in the NFL, but hasn't been sort of the most uh, the, the most acclaimed NFL coach, John Gruden. Um, Dan Quinn, who, Dan Quinn, by the way, the Atlanta Falcons, Dan Quinn, who's about to be fired. Please, please. I hope it's like <laughs> 15th or something like that on the list. It's crazy. Yeah. So the, the, the pro coaches are the ones that are, that are more astounding to me just based on, man, why did they, why did they throw that, that much money at the coaches? The other thing I found interesting about this list is how packed together these top guys were. So the, the top earning coach makes $12 million and you have to get um, through the top 20, they're only still making seven, $8 million. It's not like, it's not like the top guys are making so much more than everybody else's, which I would think would be the case given that there aren't really any limits placed on how much a franchise or a college can pay a coach. It's really just what's in your budget. And we know that the colleges, especially the ones like Alabama, like Duke that have enormous fan bases and followings can just find money anywhere. The pro teams, teams like the Patriots or pretty much any NFL team can find money anywhere. And yet they somehow manage to not suppress these salaries, but it does seem like the salaries are lower at the high end than I would expect them to be. You would think that if you have Bill Belichick, you should be paying him tons and tons of money. And that's not really happening. I, don't I can't know if believe, a, I can't yeah. believe there isn't some franchise out there, some NFL team that's like Bill Belichick, $25 million. Come yeah. on over. I can't he believe clearly, he clearly has here. the goods. He's worth it. <laughs> Yeah. So, so that's my, I, I think that's my big takeaway from this list is that, is that teams don't really know, even when we know that coaches are good, we know that Bill Belichick is good, regardless of how you feel about the cheating. We know that, that Greg Popovich is good. There's, there is tons of literature about Greg Popovich being a great coach. And yet it's not like he makes so much more than anybody else does, despite the fact that there's tons of money out there. So I, I think what this tells us is that teams don't really know how to value coaches the same way they value players. There's obviously tons of analytics in all of these sports about which players are, you know, have the best quick twitch, which ones, you know, have the best reaction time, all these, all these little things, who gets to the right spaces on the basketball court. All of this is known to teams. I don't think any of them really know how valuable their coaches are because otherwise you'd see a much different spread here and you would see teams trying to go for these more efficiency plays as opposed to, I mean, it looks like in the NFL that 
they just throw tons of money at, at seemingly random coaches who don't have track records. So I don't know. It's all uh, that, about making that, a splash. And I think in the case of maybe like the NFL and even like the NBA, it's, you know, if you fire a coach, you want to make a either a big splash or make fans feel like you did because you paid them a lot of money. And Doc it, Rivers like, is Doc Rivers is one of the top ten coaches in salary, and what does he have? Two championships from, but, yeah, from yeah, wait. twelve years ago. Yeah. I literally mm-hmm. was going to talk about Doc. Doc is like is the second highest paid NBA coach, one million behind Greg Popovich, and I just and like, ahead of Steve Kerr. I, I'm I'm like I mean I like Doc. Doc's a good coach, and I think the Clippers are going to be really good this year. And you know he did a nice job at the Celtics, but I don't go yeah. Doc Eric Spolstra is the, in the top twenty. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like what? It, it, I agree. That's I mean, at a least Bo has won. At least Bo has won some championships. So is Doc. Doc has championships. As a, they were, think, as a player. No, no, no. He no, won. Oh, a no, I'm sorry. With the Celtics, he won, yeah, with, he won yeah. with Boston. Yeah. No, but but, but I mean, Sam, but it's Spolster a great. Won them with, but Spolster won them with with Dwayne Wade and and, and LeBron and LeBron James. <laughs> you know what? He got paid for it too. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> that he did. No, but I, Sam, I think your observation, it's amazing how tightly packed they are. And, and yeah, just some of the names, it's like, you want to be like, really that, that guy. Um, because the, I feel like there are, there's this rarefied air of a few coaches where you go, you almost can't pay them enough. Like Duke pays my coach, coach K $9 million. If you told me Duke was playing coach K $50 million, I'd be like, yep, yeah, yep. That sounds right. Sounds right. <laughs> and I'd also um, yeah. say that's not enough. <laughs> yeah, but but like same thing with Calipari, same thing with Saban, same thing with Dabo Swinney. And by the way, those four guys, that's the current Mount Rushmore of college coaching. There's no one else, in my opinion. Those four guys are the Mount Rushmore of college coaching right now. Jim Harbaugh, um, Jim Harbaugh also cracks the, the top 20 in Saturday. How is the, He might get fired. How is that happening? Crazy. When he talks, man. Um, that was a good, that was a good one. Thanks. Thanks, Sam. Uh, for my parting shot, I am going to touch on the coolest thing that happened over the weekend and it was in the world of high school football. Uh, But I want to take us back to what was one of the dark days in the history of our country, December 14th, 2012. Obviously I'm talking about the date of the shootings at Sandy Hook elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut, obviously it's been at the center of political debates the last seven years. We're not going to get into that part of it, but I think everyone can agree that what happened that day was a stain on American history. And it was one of the saddest days in recent memory, but Seven days to the day after that dark day, that community was lifted because Newtown High School won the state championship in football on a 36-yard touchdown pass on the final play of the game. It was a great thing. You can see it on Twitter. It was all over the place. Some of the players on that team went to Sandy Hook. One player on the team had a brother who was killed that day. And the kids that were able to bring joy on what is always going to be a day of incredible pain and hurt for them and their community – for them to be able to lift their community for just one day was absolutely nothing short of incredible. I think uh, ESPN Scott Van Pelt put it emotionally brilliant, but very simply when he said seven years ago was an unspeakably awful day. Seven years to the day, kids from that town and that school did this winning the state championship. Sports are amazing sometimes, and they certainly are. So congrats to Newtown High School for their emotional win, and it was really truly the best thing that happened this past weekend. Wow, Donald, I'm so glad you brought it up. It's it's a great, amazing story um, of you know courage and triumph, and um, uh, you you win the parting shot of the week. That's for sure. Great job, buddy. Well, they they do. I mean, it, it really was. I was thinking about what to do, and that seemed perfect. 
because it, it was a perfect moment and that, they should have that moment. And it was cool. I, I think last night on um, Sunday night football, they invited them to New York to the studio. So Mike Tirico and Rodney Harrison and, and uh, Tony Dungy had them in the studio at halftime, which I thought was, was perfect, a perfect way to, to send them off as, as, as the champions they are. And I think that's going to do it for episode 177 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Uh, we're going to be back sometime after, after the Wofford game and then before Brown and Boston College. And we'll have a few days. Uh, Sam and Jason, in case we don't record before the beginning of Hanukkah, happy Hanukkah to you two and to all of you guys out there. An early start to happy holiday season. We will catch you soon. Duke fan, take us home.